morning. Hey, if y'all would remain standing for the reading of the word, uh, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11 today. Um, I'll give you guys a second to scroll there, but man, thank you all so much. You guys just served us so well. Um, and thanks for letting the spirit move through you guys. So 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11 reads this. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore... Encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Marcus. Uh, Olivia, I got beef with you now. I freshly shaved my head this morning, and you gave me like all these chills all over my whole body while I was singing, and I could feel the hair on my head growing back out. <laughs> and the thing is, is that it grows in patches now, which is neat. You know, it's neat. It's different than it used to be. Our church is so rich, like just so rich, so rich. I, I listened to Stephen's sermon this last week, and I, I want to make sure that I'm really clear about something. Uh, we don't have replacement or stand-in preachers who come and stand on our stage. We have uh, men stand up here who are pastors to us and who have a call to pastoring and... Um, I love it that we have a variety of people who get to stand on this stage and preach to you. I think it's important for us to have a variety of voices opening God's word and communicating and not have a church that's built around one personality or around one person other than the personality and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, it's, a, it's an honor to stand on this stage with men like Stephen and, and next week with men like Marcus, who, who's going to preach to us uh, next week. Last week, as Stephen preached, it was a message of comfort for those who are dead, for those who are dying, or for those who've had a loved one uh, who has died. The message was comfort because of the truth about the resurrection. And so it was a word of comfort. And today, Paul turns and moves from comfort for the dead to a challenge for the living. And he, he really, he, he echoes this in Philippians chapter one. I'm not gonna read it to you. You're probably familiar with the passage, but in Philippians chapter one, Paul goes on like sort of this, this tangent. It's almost like he's just thinking about things and he writes them down in a letter where he's like, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I don't really know which one's better. Whether it's better to go ahead and just depart and be with Jesus, which is what I really want to do, or to stay here and have to face life and work hard. And I know that staying here will produce fruit and that that's important, but man, I want to be with Jesus. I mean, like I feel that in my bones, like the struggle of living in a fallen world because the fallen world drives me crazy. 
seeing the brokenness and the sin, seeing the injustice all over the place. It's sort of like watching a football game where you know what they ought to do. And the stupid coach who's being paid billions of dollars just won't do the thing that you, as a person with vast knowledge of offensive and defensive schemes in football, clearly understand exactly what's supposed to happen. I can look at the world and be like, I know exactly what everybody's supposed to do. But then it comes to my own life, which is imminently more frustrating because I also know the thing that I'm supposed to do and I'm not able to do that. C.S. Lewis says that the law of nature is that everyone, uh, everything in nature does what it's supposed to do. But the law of human nature is that none of us do the things that we're supposed to do. And Paul, this morning, Paul is laying out for the church in Thessalonica and laying out for us a challenge. The challenge is that we have to live. That's the challenge. We actually have to live. And not just some life, because we're all good at living somebody else's life. We're all good with somebody else's calling, but to live the life that God has given to us. So he kicks things off in verses 1 and 2. And he says about the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Jesus warned and taught about this very thing. If you flip back to Matthew chapter 24, I'm gonna read a couple of sections of scripture to you today. Matthew 24, starting in verse 36, Jesus says this, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, except the father alone. As the days of Noah's were, uh, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the son of man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the son of man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. In Revelation 16, 15, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming and it's gonna be like a thief in the night. So be vigilant, be ready. He says, stay clothed, don't get caught with your pants down. Don't get caught unaware. He doesn't say with your pants down. He says naked. I was going to avoid it. And then just now I've decided to go ahead and say the word. So for all the children in the room, whether young or old children in the room, you can giggle with that later. Jesus says, don't get caught naked. Be clothed, be vigilant, be ready, be ready to go. Don't be caught unaware. Paul's like, you guys have already been told this. You've already been taught about this. I don't need to write you anything about this. Now he's gonna write a whole nother book, 2 Thessalonians, where he does go ahead and write some more about it. But right now he's like, there's no new information to give. Jesus is going to come back. The Lord is going to return. And I have nothing new to tell you about that event. It's imminent, he's coming. Sarah and I lived in Memphis for a while. If you've ever lived in Memphis, you've probably been robbed. Just, just if you didn't know. We lived in Memphis and one day Sarah uh, loaded, up, uh, loaded up Nathan and Aubrey to go pick up Caleb from kindergarten. And for those of you who have to sit in a car line, you can't appreciate it. If you've never had to do it, you just can't appreciate it. 
You're just sitting there and waiting for school to let out and then you're looking for your kid and, and you get your kid and you come back. And while Sarah was in car line with our kids, some teenagers came in, kicked in the back door of our home and robbed us. She came home to a house that had been robbed. There is no feeling like the feeling of being robbed. There's no feeling like the feeling of knowing people were in here. They broke in, they kicked in a door. They went through our clothes. They went through private things. They ransacked the house. They took a bunch of really stupid and weird stuff. Like it was the stuff that they took was so weird. It was so strange. But just to know that strangers had been there and been walking, it was so strange. And, and you're never ready for it. That's the way a thief works. You're not ready for it. I was thinking about this passage and I was actually thinking about you, Andy. I was thinking about like, if, if someone told Andy, I'm going to break in your home this week. I'm just telling you, you're going to die and he's going to enjoy it. If you tell someone I'm going to break into your home, then they're going to make their home a fortress. They're gonna fortify their home. They're gonna, they're gonna engrave bullets with your name on it and they're gonna deliver them at a high velocity to you. They're, they're going to, morning Phoebe, they're going to make their home a hard target. They're going to be vigilant. They're going to stay alert. They're going to be prepared. The problem is we don't know when Jesus is coming back. That's the problem. Anytime we talk about Jesus is coming back. Okay, but when? When is Jesus coming back? And Jesus himself was like, nobody knows. I don't know. The angels don't know. Only God the Father knows. And he's not telling anyone. Nobody knows. And yet, those of us who lived with cognitive awareness through the year 1988 can remember that there was a phenomenon that took place in 1988 and it was a book that was written and the name of the book was 88 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Will Return in 1988. Does anybody besides me remember this book? This was a whole worldwide phenomenon. 4.5 million copies of this book sold. Four and a half million copies. This pastor, this, this pa I'm gonna, pastor, this, this religious charlatan, this guy who's making a quick buck said, I figured out the numerology of the Old and New Testament. I've done the math on all the prophecies and I have determined that somewhere during Rosh Hashanah, during the Jewish New Year, Jesus Christ is going to return in 1988. It is a lock. In fact, he said, were a king to bet me my life, like put your life on the line. How sure are you? He said, I would risk my life. That's how sure I am. And you know what happened? People believed him all over the world. They were convinced that it was going to happen. I was in fifth grade when it happened. And I remember because my friend, Steve Baza, who once bit me in anger while we were watching TV. It's true. It's another whole nother story. Steve Baza once bit me in anger. Hi, Phoebe, in anger. His family took him out of school. In fact, dozens of my friends, their parents checked them out of school. You know why? Because they were like, we're going to hunker down. Jesus is coming back and we're going to go see him as a family. And I was like, mom and dad, can I get out of school? And my mom and dad were like, there's one thing we know for sure. And that's that Jesus is not coming back when this guy said he's coming back. 
We're 100% sure of that, and you're going to school. I grew up in a home where you went to school. I, my, I don't know what my parents would have done during COVID whenever I was growing up because I have a vivid memory of once throwing up before school. Both my parents were teachers, so it was a huge ordeal for me to miss school, and I threw up before school, and my mom said, do you feel better? And I said, yeah, I feel better. She said, good, get in the car. We're going to school. I went to school. Can I get out of school? For, for Jesus' return. It's the return of Jesus. If there's ever a good reason to miss school, it's the return of Jesus. And my mom was like, no, Jesus isn't coming back. He's not going back in 1988. I'm sure of that. By the way, this same guy kept refiguring his math. And every year he wrote another companion copy to his book, The Year of the Lord, 1989, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, and so on for several years. And then eventually he just disappeared. I also remember though on 9-11, I remember vividly 9-11. I mean, I'm sure most of you who were alive during it do. I was walking into work at First Baptist Church of Winsville and the secretary said, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center tower and they think it's a terrorist attack. And I was like, cool, I'm going home. And I left, I mean, I had just walked in and I left. She's like, you're going home. I said, yeah, I'm going home. She's like, why are you going home? I said, because the world's probably ending today and I'm gonna go be with my wife. You know, we haven't been married all that long. I love her and I wanna hang out with her. And if we're gonna go meet our maker, if the, you know, the United States is gonna be carpet bombed with nukes or whatever's gonna happen, like if this is the end times, if this is the rapture moment, I wanna be with my wife. And so I called my wife and I was like, hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center tower. She's like, it did? I said, yeah, I think it might be the end of the world. So I'm coming home to hang out with you. I figure if Jesus comes back or if we get nuked and we have to go meet him, then we should be together right? Let's, let's do it together. And, and uh, that event actually is what led my wife to giving her life to Jesus. That, that single casual throwaway half joke and mostly serious statement that I made, either, the, you know, either we're going to die today or Jesus is coming back today. It seems like a good chance. So I'm coming home to be with you. My confidence of knowing what was going to happen to me made her say, why don't I share that same confidence knowing that I will be with the Lord always, knowing that I will go to heaven. And that led her on a journey of coming to faith in Jesus. What's the point of all this? And why doesn't Jesus tell us? The point of all this is this. When we see the end drawing near, we tend to think cruise ship, not battleship. I mean, think about retirement. Just think about retirement. Is the general thought with retirement, now I have plenty of leisure time, like plenty of discretionary time. So I'm going to find new ways to invest myself in the kingdom of God. Or I see the time of my life drawing to a near, uh, draw, the time of the end of my life drawing near. So I want to maximize my enjoyment of it. I don't mean this as a criticism against anybody who's retired. My parents are retired and they enjoy their life and they invest their life. It's not a criticism of people who retire. It's It's normal. It's normal for us to go, you know what? I got this cancer diagnosis. So instead of thinking about how to give my life away, instead of thinking about how to orient my life around the mission of God, I'm gonna go skydiving. I'm gonna go Rocky Mountain climbing and I'm gonna go 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. We tend to think about retreat. We tend to think about comfort. We tend to think about all the experiences that we want to have in this life for ourselves, all the things that we haven't done that we want to do, all of the joy that we want to consume and possess that we haven't yet consumed or possessed. 
all of the stories that we want to be able to have told, we tend to think retreat. But a battleship has to always be thinking readiness. Ready for what's coming next. Maybe that's why God doesn't tell us. I mean, what would you do differently today if you knew for sure that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And what would you do tomorrow? Or conversely, what if Jesus wasn't going to come back for 6,000 years? Like you knew for sure. 88 reasons why Jesus will not come back until 8088. What if you knew for sure? How would that affect the way that you operate? It's modern teenagers cannot appreciate the terror of having your parents say, we're going out and we'll be back around 9 p.m. And when we get home, we want the dishes done and the house clean. You can't appreciate the horror of 8.35 coming and headlights flashing through the front window of your home and going, oh no, we had hours, we did nothing and our parents are going to kill us. Because back then, parents used to beat their children with belts and paddles, not just give you timeouts, make you sit there and think about what you did. <laughs> I've got ADD, so that's not a problem for me. Like, did you think about what you did? I tried. It didn't come to mind. How did you spend this time? I don't remember. I'm thinking about something else now. I don't know what, I don't know what to tell you. This wasn't a productive punishment. I'm sorry. We should try something different. There's nothing to say about it except this. He's coming back. I don't know when. Neither do you. Neither does anyone else. And the surest sign that someone is trying to sell you something is when they tell you that they know for sure. They know for sure. It reminds me a little bit of Y2K. I have, I have a book somewhere in a case in the basement of our home and the title of the book is The Millennium Meltdown and it has a big giant sticker on it that says 50% off because I bought it after Y2K. I was like, I gotta have that. I gotta have that book. I haven't read it. I just, I like the title and the sticker. You know what I mean? I was like, you know, I think Y2K is a hoax because everybody who's selling stuff about Y2K is accepting credit card orders. I'm pretty sure they'd be cash only. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're going to have to give me a cashier's check because I'm not taking anybody's credit because the whole credit system is going to collapse. We have all this confidence that this specific thing is going to happen. We have no knowledge about when it's going to happen. And that's a wonderful and freeing gift for us and presents an incredible challenge for us. Paul says, when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. First Peter chapter three really, I think, illuminates this. Just a few books over to the right, right after the book of James, Hebrews, and then James, and then First Peter. 
it says this in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, excuse me, actually, I think it's 2 Peter chapter 3. I made that wrong in my notes. It is 2 Peter chapter 3, which is right after 1 Peter, just if you were still looking. Starting in verse 3, Peter, he says this, Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers, that's people who want to make a joke out of everything, and not a joke that's funny, but a joke that's meant to tear people down and tear ideas down. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his, quote, coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have, as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This consistent message of the New Testament, it's found in the Gospels, it's found in Paul's letters, it's found in pastoral epistles, it's found in Peter's letters, it's found in the book of Revelation, it's this, Jesus is coming back. The Lord will return and it will be at a time when no one expects it. And people will be saying peace and security. People will be saying, where is this coming? It's never going to happen. This is how most of the world lives and most of us live. He's not really coming back. It doesn't really matter what I do. He's not gonna return today. I can step into this sin. I can step into this laziness. I can step into this backsliding. I can step into this doubt and just fully embrace it. I don't have to fear because he's not really going to come back. He's never coming back. He never comes back. It's not ever going to happen. This is what will be said. And then they will be seized like labor pains on a pregnant woman. My wife has been pregnant three times. And all three times, I prayed many prayers of thanksgiving to God that I am a man. Ladies, especially you ladies who have given birth, even if you haven't, you are my hero. There's an old joke where a man says, you know, without women, we would still be back in the garden. And the woman says, without women, you would have died. And if the roles were reversed and men had to give birth, there would have been exactly one generation of humanity. It never would have happened again. I can remember when Sarah was in labor and the labor pains would hit and you could touch anywhere on her stomach and it was like it was made of concrete. And I can't conceive of the pains of that. But those pains produce something. Something happens those pains are productive. They're terrifying, but they're productive. And once they start, there's really nothing that can be done. It's happening. It's going to happen now. One way or another, this event is going to take place. I like that Paul says, you're not in the dark. 
for this day to surprise you like a thief. Jesus says over and over again, I'm coming like a thief in the night. I'm gonna come like a thief. This event will happen like a thief. This thing is going to take place when nobody expects it. This thing is gonna take place while people are saying uh, peace and security. But Jesus says things like, keep your lamp lit, keep your clothes on, be vigilant, be ready, stay alert. Don't fall asleep. Don't get distracted. Don't be discouraged. It is going to happen, so be ready. There's a thief that's coming in the night. And you can do one of two things. Pretend like the thief is not going to come or make yourself ready for the appearance. You can pretend as if the event just isn't going to happen and just live your life. But guess what? When that back door gets kicked in, something's going to go down. Something is going to happen. Jesus says, I'm gonna come like a thief in the night, but you can make yourself ready for it. This is the challenge of being a follower of Jesus. This is it, this is the challenge because he gives us grace. I like what Bailey said, mercy is when you don't get the thing that you do deserve. The bad thing that you're supposed to get, you don't, it doesn't happen to you. Grace is the good thing that you don't deserve and you get it. I love that. I love that imagery that God has given us grace. The problem is, is that once he saved us, he didn't just rapture us out of here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, come on. I understand if you got to leave a few preachers behind, I get it. But if you really want an effective evangelism strategy, as soon as people get saved, take them to heaven. <clears throat> hey, has anybody seen Bill? Where's Bill? He got saved last week. Boo, gone. He's out of here, man. He's living in paradise now. And I got to tell you, heaven is going to be a lot better than sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. That doesn't sound like fun at all to me. To do that for eternity? Are you kidding me? Heaven is where purpose is absolutely accomplished, achieved, and sustained. Meaning, joy, the best food you will have ever eaten with the best family you could ever imagine. No pain, no problems. Work that works. We'll boot up our computers and never get the blue screen of death again. You'll never again have to look at a rainbow wheel. The internet service in heaven is going to be blazing fast. You will have purpose for eternity. You will have meaning for eternity. You will have belonging and, and family for eternity. You will have the choicest of foods and the richest of experiences for eternity. You will win in eternity. You will not have sickness in eternity. And I'm saying like Paul, man, it sort of sounds pretty good. Sounds like maybe I just should check out of here. But like Paul, I understand there's a purpose to my life. The purpose for my life is to be buried that it might bear much fruit. This is the challenge for us who are alive, that we have to keep on living. That's the challenge. You're alive. You have to keep on living. Every new day is a new opportunity. Every new day is a new sense of purpose. Every new day is a new challenge. Because here's the thing, and it's so frustrating. Every new day, I wake up as the same old me. You know what I'm saying? I'm still just me. And it's difficult to persevere. It's difficult to keep pushing forward. It is, I mean... <laughs> I was at a youth retreat this last weekend. That's why I wasn't here. 
And the guy that's leading worship is a guy named Jason Waller. You can actually find him on Spotify or Apple Music. He's really a fantastic worship leader. And uh, we were hanging out and talking beforehand. And he said, did you drink a Red Bull before you walked in here? And I said, I am a Red Bull. Like, where do you think that comes from? They just extract it right out of my veins, baby. Just, and that, they download that. The red can, that's my blood. That's actually, that's extracted from my veins. And he laughed. And, and I was like, yeah, it's uh, in, in different ways than it is for you. It can be exhausting to be me. For me, I know I exhaust all of you. I know I can be frustrating to have around sometimes annoying and, and sometimes so disappointing. Imagine being me and never being able to get away from it. It feels the same way that you feel about yourself. This is the challenge before us as followers of Jesus. The challenge is that we have to keep on living. We have to keep on living, keep on living the life in the body that God gave us. You understand following Jesus is not an abstract thing. You can't follow Jesus in the abstract and the theoretical. All of us are good at following Jesus in the abstract and the theoretical. All of us are good at following Jesus in somebody else's skin and with somebody else's calling. But the challenge for us is to say, with this particular life and this particular body and this particular brain and these particular interests and passions and rhythms, how am I supposed to follow Jesus? How do I live for him in a way that makes a difference? In a way that has meaning and significance? The return of Jesus is a comfort and an inspiration and a challenge. It's real, it's sure, and it's imminent. So he says, don't, don't sleep. Stay awake and be self-controlled. In other words, closing your eyes won't make it go away. Ignoring it won't make it not happen. But consistent thing that God impresses upon me is you're spending your life in this moment. In this moment, you understand, you're giving your life today to this moment. That's what it is to be present somewhere, to give your life to it. You're giving your life to this moment every day, spending your life. C.T. Studd wrote this beautiful poem. He said, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. So Paul says, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake and be self-controlled. For people who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we belong to the day. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. Not a slave to our desires, not a slave to our emotions. It's not a full understanding of self-control, but I think it's a pretty good start. To not be a slave to your desires. You know why? Because your desires will deceive you. That's what they do. You go, oh man, I gotta have this thing. And you get that thing and you're like, ah, that thing was a waste of money. Why'd I buy that thing? That's, I'm, I'm such a dummy. Why do you think they put a bunch of stuff right by the checkout areas? Because I know we're stupid. You and I, we're dumb. They bait that hook and I'm like, man, a Butterfinger doesn't sound terrible right now. Sure, it's $3.97, but it's a Butterfinger. I think it might be king-sized. 
Turns out it's not king size. Instead of one solid bar, they put two smaller bars. That's what they do now. Instead of one bigger bar, that's a whole thing, they broke it into two pieces. So I'm getting less and paying more. That's a great deal though. Can't pass up that deal. And when we go, well, a new iPhone's out. I've got to have the new iPhone. And a new model of a vehicle is out. I've got to have the new model of the vehicle. And the housing market's so low, I'd be crazy not to sell my house and buy a bigger house. And on and on and on and on and on. Our desires are endless. They're like two leeches that say more. Give us more. And the promise is that when we give them more, they will be satisfied. But they're deceptive. They're liars. They want us to keep feeding them. And they are an endless black hole. Your desires will deceive you and your emotions will enslave you. Your emotions want to make something out of you. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Great story. Murder, intrigue, communion with God, worship. It's all there. It's got all the good Bible stuff. They both bring offerings to God. God is pleased with Abel's offering, but he doesn't like Cain's offering. Because Cain brought forward his own work And Abel said, I'm bringing forward, giving back to you what you've given to me. The posture of their heart was different. The content of their offering was different. And Cain gets ticked off. He throws a pity party, party of one. You know what I'm saying? He's like, hmm, I just don't think God understands me. I don't think God likes me. God doesn't appreciate me. God doesn't like me. He likes Abel. I hate Abel. He always is the favorite one. God always seems to think he's great. And he starts getting more and more and more angry. And then he starts plotting. He's plotting, you know what I'm saying? He's plotting. And God comes to him and he says, why are you so angry? Why are you so downcast? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have mastery over you. You must have mastery over it. Can I tell you something? Every emotion that you have is a gift. Every single emotion. Everything that you feel is a gift when it's used properly. Every emotion is an indicator light. It's telling you something about yourself, about God, about the world around you. You feel angry. Sometimes you're supposed to feel angry. Jesus felt anger. The Bible says be angry, but in your anger, don't sin. In other words, feel your feelings and then do something with your feelings. Otherwise, your feelings are going to do something with you. Be self-controlled. Don't be controlled by your selfishness. Don't be controlled by your desires. Don't be controlled by your emotions. Sin is crouching at your door. It's waiting for you. It's ready to pounce on you. Those feelings, those desires that you have, what are you to do with them? You're to bring them to the God who made you, redeemed you, and loves you still. And to say, this is what I have. What am I supposed to do with this? This is something I started talking to my boys particularly about when they were young teenagers. You're angry. The first question you have to ask yourself is, do I have a right to be angry? Should I be angry? Because sometimes you're supposed to be angry. If the answer is no, then you have to say, God, I'm angry and I don't have a right to be angry. Can you help me? Because if you act on anger when you're not supposed to be angry, you're gonna act wrong. 
You're going to do the wrong thing. And we see young men thrown into prisons because they got angry and they acted out of their anger. You know what I'm saying? They just let that emotion drive the decision-making process for them. They weren't self-controlled. Are you supposed to be angry? If you're supposed to be angry, then the second question is pretty easy. How do you honor God with this anger? What are you supposed to do about it? If you're supposed to be angry, then you're probably supposed to do something. Be self-controlled. Don't be a slave to your desires or to your emotions because your desires are going to deceive you and your emotions are going to enslave you. He says, be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. I really like this. The armor of faith and love. The armor of faith and love. You know, we change. We're changing, all of us. We're becoming someone. We're in the process of becoming a person. Faith and love protect us, and they protect us by moving us in the right direction. There's no such thing as a person standing still. There's no such thing as a person staying the same. Despite all of the wonderful advice that your friends in middle school and high school gave you in your yearbook, don't ever change. Right? Stay the same forever. I'm a 17-year-old idiot. My prefrontal cortex is not fully formed. I'm, I am actually, literally brain damaged. And you don't want me to change? I'm an idiot. I need to change a little bit. We are all changing. We are all becoming. Faith and love protect us by helping us change in the right way. Because faith is saying, I believe God. I believe him. I believe that he exists. I believe that he rewards those who seek him. And I believe that he is a keeper of his word. It moves me in the right way. And love is centered on others. Love is not about me. Love never asks the question, what do I get out of this? Love is always asking the question, what can I put into this? What can I give? How can I sacrifice? How can I share? It's moving us towards God and towards others. A warm and growing affection for God and for others. It protects us by moving us in the right direction. And the helmet of the hope of salvation protects us from fear, from fatalism, and from futility. Because you, you need to understand those of you who are Christians in the room, you have been saved and you will be saved. You live in the already, not yet. You have been saved. You are saved, but you don't get to experience the fullness of that until either Jesus returns and comes to you or you die and go to him. And that's when your salvation is finalized. That's when it comes to full blossom and bloom. That's when it bears the real and valuable fruit. You were saved, you are saved, and you will be saved. In the meantime, that hope of salvation, that concrete hope, that belief that it's real and it's true and it will happen saves you from fear. Fear immobilizes us. When we get afraid, we freeze or we retreat or we react. 
we're told over and over and over, every time an angel shows up, every time God speaks to someone who has every reason to be afraid of him, every time Jesus talks to someone who betrayed him, every time there's a divine encounter, it's the same consistent message for those whom God loves and for those who love God. Don't be afraid. The hope of salvation says, I don't have to be afraid. Even when I sin, I don't have to be afraid because all the punishment for sin was poured out on Jesus. None is left for me. There's no punishment left for my sin. It's all been punished. There's no payment left for my sin. I don't have to do something to get forgiven. All my sin's been paid for. There's no sacrifice I have to make because all my sin has been atoned for. That's the hope of salvation. When I know all of that, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid of what the world can do to me. The apostles understood this in the book of Acts over and over and over again. They're like, what are you gonna do to me? Kill me? Awesome, thank you. Please send me home because I know where I'm going and I'm not afraid to go there. I'm not afraid to be honest with you. I'm not afraid to tell you the truth. I'm not afraid to tell you that your sin will send you to hell because my sin would also send me to hell were it not for Jesus and my faith in him. I don't have to be afraid because I know that I was saved, I am saved, and I will be saved. So there's nothing for me to fear. What can man do to me? Who can separate me from the love of Jesus? Fear, tribulation, angels, demons, things past, things present, things to come? No, no. We know that in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for me. I don't have to be afraid of anything. I don't have to be afraid of anyone. You know what that means? That means that you, with tremendous courage, can face the life that God has given you. Because you were saved, you are saved, and you will be saved. You don't have to be afraid of anyone. You don't have to be afraid of anything. That doesn't mean that you won't ever be thrown in prison. That doesn't mean that you won't ever suffer loss. That doesn't mean that you won't experience pain and injustice. What it means is you don't have to be afraid of those things because you see a much bigger picture than those who are asleep. After all, they're asleep. They don't see anything, but not you. You're awake and it's daytime. You can see everything. It protects us from fear. It protects us from fatalism. Fatalism. It's just a big word for people who are the exact opposite of me, the eternal optimist. The fatalist says, it doesn't matter. Nothing's ever going to work anyway, and nothing matters. Fatalism saps our strength, and it invalidates, it invalidates our purpose. It vacates our purpose. There are those who say that the universe is just a giant machine. It started with a giant, nameless, faceless, purposeless explosion of matter that ultimately resulted in what we see and experience around us today. There's no design, there's no designer, there's no purpose to it, there's no meaning in it. The best that you can do is discover your own meaning and implement it. And the truth is, that's really, really stupid. That's the legend of Sisyphus. Do you know this legend? He's a guy who cheated in Greek mythology, cheated the gods out of death, and they got mad at him. So they purposed for him and they planned for him this elaborate trap in which they punished him by saying that he must take a rock, push it up a hill and leave it at the top of the hill. But the hill was constructed by the gods in such a way that the rock could never be stabilized. 
on top of the hill. It would always roll back down. But Sisyphus cheats the gods again by determining in his own mind that there is purpose in pushing a rock up a hill for all eternity. Ah, and we celebrate Sisyphus. And this is where the whole philosophy of existentialism is born. In fact, the show Seinfeld is actually based on existential philosophy, which is based out of the legend of Sisyphus. That there is no meaning and there is no purpose and all you can do is determine that what you're doing is meaningful and purposeful. Which is how we end up with a crazy world that has no objective morality and no objective truth. Full of people that say, I have my truth. Which is just counterintuitive to what the word truth is. Stardust cannot offend other stardust. Stardust cannot abuse stardust. Stardust cannot rape stardust. And if all we are is purposeless matter, then the universe really is just a machine, and the only thing that exists is power. And there's nothing else. Fatalism tries to tell us your life has no meaning, has no purpose, has no value, has no significance, so why even bother? It protects us from futility because it can be frustrating to be you, right? To wonder if you're ever going to get on top of the things that you can never seem to get on top of. And don't you hear the devil crawl up onto your shoulder, you know, with his little forked tail or whatever it is and his red and black trident and say to you, what's the point of even trying you're never going to be what you're supposed to be. You know what he says to me. You know, your church would be better off with a different pastor. Your wife would be better off with a, dis a different husband. Your kids would be better off with a different dad. And your friends would be better off with a different friend. A better leader wouldn't have made those mistakes. A better Christian wouldn't have committed those sins. This is what it feels like when Satan tries to condemn. It's always these broad general statements that you can do nothing about. Futility makes us say, why even try? But the hope of salvation says, God knows my whole story, has paid the price for all my sins. All of my sins were in the future when Jesus died. He covered all of them. He loved me through all of them, past all of them, in spite of all of them. The helmet of the hope of salvation reminds us of the truth. Jesus is coming back to rescue me and has given me the message of hope to share with others. I'm protected from the fatal blows. I'm protected from the condemnation. I'm protected from the separation from God. In verses 9 through 11, Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. God did not appoint you to wrath 
You do not have to experience God's wrath. You are not destined for destruction. You don't have to go through that. You can obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why it's called good news. And if it's not good news for everybody, then it's not good news. It is good news for me. It is good news for you. Hi, Phoebe. One touch. Love you. That's why it's called good news. You don't have to experience the wrath of God. You were not appointed for the wrath of God, but to obtain salvation. I like that language. I like that language. I can remember the conversation with Sarah pretty vividly, actually. I remember the kind of phone I had when I made the calls. First cell phone I ever had. I had a really fun football game on it. I really liked I don't make it anymore because it was all text-related. Ironically, before we were texting. I remember the follow-up conversations. The Sarah feeling doubt and being afraid of the doubt. And chances are good in a room this big that when you think about the imminent return of Jesus, that he's coming back, and maybe the imminent possibility of your own death, that you're not comforted by that. You're not thinking about that and going like, I'm longing for it. Like, come on, Jesus, let's go. Let's do this thing. That you don't have the confidence of Paul that's like, I don't know if it's better to die or keep on living. Because if I die, I get to be with Jesus, which is awesome, way better than this experience. But if I live, it's beneficial to the people that are around me because God's given me purpose. My life's going to bear fruit. I want to speak specifically to those of you feeling that way. And I want to say that that doubt is a gift to you if you will use it. If you'll not be afraid of it. If you'll allow yourself to honestly say, have I obtained salvation? Do I have confidence that I have been saved, I am saved, and I will be saved? I don't think doubt is a thing that you have to run away from or be afraid of. I don't think questions, if, if God is not big enough to handle my doubt and my questions, then he's probably not strong enough to save me. He's big enough to handle your doubt. He's big enough to handle your questions. The issue for most of us is that we say, I'd rather take a nap or go get drunk or whatever your version of those two things are. I'd rather just pretend like it's not there. I'd rather numb it and quiet it down than have to face off with it. My wife is my hero because she courageously follows Jesus. It's way harder to be a pastor's wife than it is to be a pastor. And she's incredible. And as a pastor's wife, she gave her life to Jesus and was baptized. You know why? Because that matters way more than what anybody thinks about you way more. We're talking about eternity. I can't even remember what I did last week. We're talking about eternity. Have you obtained salvation? Is it yours? Do you know it? If not, why would you leave this place without knowing it? If you know you don't have it, 
Don't leave this room without taking possession of it. But understand this, this isn't the kind of thing that you can casually grab a hold of. My son this week will graduate from basic training. He's gonna graduate basic, my, my boy, my baby boy, he's gonna graduate basic training. He's gonna serve in the armed forces as a military intelligence analyst with the Illinois National Guard. He's gonna risk his life to help preserve, protect, and defend this wonderful country that we get to enjoy. And if the day comes that he lays down his life for our country and for the freedoms that we get to enjoy, you better believe there will never be a greater patriot than his father who will vigilantly stand guard and say, my son paid for the freedoms that you now are wasting. God so loved you, he gave his only son, not just so that a thin slice of the pie would have a chance at heaven, but that all who believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to set the world free. In Galatians 5, it says, it's for freedom that you were set free, so don't be enslaved again. In Acts chapter 4, it says that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which you must be saved. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Someone gave their life to purchase this for you. Just as Bailey read, very rarely will a good person lay down their life for good people. How much must God love you that he would have his son lay down his life for someone like you, someone like me? Following Jesus is not a casual affair. If someone's going to break into your home, it's not a thing that you take lightly. You protect your family, you get them out of the house, you harden up the target, you take it seriously. And your life is a limited time offer. Paul told the church in Corinth, he said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And this could be the moment for you to soften your heart and place your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. I'm gonna ask you right now to bow your head and to close your eyes. To deal first with this question, have I obtained salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the confidence of your salvation based on what Jesus has done for you or is the confidence of your salvation been based on what you've been doing for him? Big, big difference because you can't get salvation based on what you're doing for God. 
We're saved by grace through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It's a gift. So none of us gets to brag. Have you obtained salvation? Have you repented of your sin? Turned away from it. Put your faith in what Jesus did to pay for your sin. And confessed that Jesus is now the Lord of your life. And if you haven't, would you do that right now? To just pray something like this, God, I am a sinner. And I believe that you sent Jesus to pay the price for my sin. I believe that Jesus alone is the one who makes me right with you, the one who saves me. And so I'm asking you to save me. I'm giving you my life. And if you're here this morning and you've made that decision, as everyone still with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd like you to just raise up your hand so that I can pray for you and follow up with you and encourage you. All right. Anybody else? Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? Praise God. It's a good news gospel day. If you're here this morning and you'd say, I'm not sure. Would you just raise up your hand so I can pray for you? Yeah, anybody else? I see it, you can put it down. Anybody else? Who would just say, I'm not sure. I just, I'm having doubts. Guys, tell you, you don't have to be afraid of your doubts. The best thing you do is share your doubts with someone that you trust. A friend, a parent, a pastor, a small group leader. Share your doubts and just say, I'm, I'm having doubts. I don't know what to do about it. And then take it to the Lord. Talk to him about it. Just tell him, I'm having doubts. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my doubts. And then last, if you're here, and like me this week while preparing this message, you want to say, it's time for me to repent because I want to orient my life around the mission of God. I want to live a life of purpose more than I've been living it. I want to live a life of urgency more than I've been living it. Would you just raise up your hand so I can pray for you? Yeah, there's hands up all over the place. Yeah. Slide them up, you can put them right back down. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. 
You can always depend on it. He will never let you down. He will never fail you. He will never not forgive you. When you confess your sin, he is absolutely 100% reliable. And he's just. Forgiveness is the just thing because Jesus paid for your sin and for mine. So when we confess it, it would be wrong for God not to forgive it. He's faithful and he's just. That means if you will take a moment right now, just as I've taken this morning already myself and say, God, I am confessing this sin to you and I wanna be forgiven, he absolutely will do it. Can I tell you something? You and I, we are just one choice away from God doing an incredible thing. You're just one choice away from God doing a miraculous, unbelievable work in your life. God is not in heaven withholding his love, withholding his goodness, withholding his power because he is miserly and stingy. His desire is that the world would know he's patient, Peter said, he's patient so that no one would perish but that all might come to repentance. You are one choice away. This morning, as you take the Lord's Supper, as we sing together, as we celebrate the goodness, the faithfulness, the generosity of the God who loves us, as we just revel in the grace that he's given to us, enjoy it. There's no condemnation for you. You're in Christ Jesus. God, we belong to you. Our lives are yours. Some of us this morning giving you our lives. Some wrestling with doubt about our salvation and some wrestling our sin knowing that we have not lived as you have called us and invited us to live. We've been living beneath our privilege and beneath our calling and we repent. We turn to you. As we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim with one voice as followers of Jesus that you died for us. We will live for you. That you made us right with God have given us a family, have given us a purpose, have given us a name. God, would you give us the grace to be able to follow you, to live up to the challenge and to build up and encourage each other to celebrate every step of obedience as we go on this journey as a family of faith. In your name we pray, amen. When you're ready, you can take the Lord's Supper. It's available in the hospitality area. In just a moment, the band will come back up and we'll sing together.